You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is the eighth and final episode in our series on the Burke and Wills Expedition. I hope you've enjoyed this amazing story. Robert Burke and William Wills had both died at the conclusion of our last episode, each succumbing to the harsh realities of the Australian outback. Five other of the expedition's men had died as well. Despite these tragedies, our tale is not over. One final man is still alive, for now. That is John King, the diminutive Irishman who had trekked across the continent with Burke and Wills. He was now at Cooper's Creek, alone and weak. Today we have a lot to cover. Here is the agenda. First, we will catch up to John King and find out the fate of the last unaccounted for member of the Victorian Exploring Expedition. Second, we will detail the various rescue attempts that set out to find out the fate of Burke and his men, especially the efforts made by Alfred Howitt. Third, we will then cover the aftermath of the expedition, as the deaths of Burke and Wills will mean, amongst other things, public hearings. Fourth, we will take a look at the key people from this tale and do a little review of their lives. And finally, we will take a look at the legacy of Robert Burke, William Wills, and the Victorian Exploring Expedition. Let's get started. In early July 1861, John King was alone on Cooper's Creek. He was suffering from malnutrition, exhaustion, and probably from beriberi, which is a lack of vitamin B. He was wasting away mentally and physically. King had left Burke's body and now had to figure out a way to survive. His only realistic option was to find some sympathetic locals to take him in. But before that, he decided to return to William Wills to see if the man was still alive. King did have a shotgun, and he was able to shoot a couple of crows, which would sustain him for the time being. King would return to where he and Burke had left Wills and find the young man had died. Wills's few belongings had been taken by the local people. King would bury Wills, but due to his fragile physical condition, he could only dig a shallow grave in the sand. Next, King would find and begin to follow the tracks of the natives who had come to the camp. A day later, he would reach a band of Yandruwanda Aboriginal people. Through some basic sign language and gestures, the Yandruwanda indicated that they knew that Wills was dead, but they inquired about Burke. King signaled to them that his commander was dead as well. The natives would then take pity on King. Some wept with him, while others gave him food. It was an odd situation for John King. Some of the tribe did not trust him and tried to get him to leave. Others wanted to kill him. Most, however, tolerated him, 
at least for a while. And then John King would win the graces of the Yanjuwanda in two ways. The first was his double-barrel shotgun. His ability to take down crows and other birds with flash and thunder was respected by the tribe. And the second way King impressed the Yanjuwanda was with his medical skills. An older woman, whose name was Karawa, had shown compassion towards King by providing him with some nardu. Well, King saw that the woman had a painful boil on her arm. He had a few medical supplies remaining, including some silver nitrate. King would boil some water and wash the woman's arm, and then touch it with the nitrate, disinfecting it. The next morning, the boil was clearly healing, and King now had a friend. The grateful Kerouac would take King under her protective wing. King's doctoring impressed the natives, who now recognized that he had some unique powers that provided value to the tribe. However, King could not just be a freeloader. He was expected to help provide for the entire tribe. Thus, he learned the aboriginal customs, such as building a gunye, which is a temporary shelter made of sticks and bark. And he would learn the Yandruwanda language, not necessarily to talk to his hosts, but to gain some understanding of what they were saying. Now, the other thing that King had to do, if he wanted to stay with the tribe, was to travel with them. When they moved, he moved. By the way, the Yandruwanda asked King about Burke, so he took them to his body. They would weep at the sight of the corpse and cover it with bushes. King was touched by the respect the Yanjuwanda displayed towards his former commander. So, the days with the Yanjuwanda would turn to weeks and then months. King would find his place within the tribe and even be given a tribal name. Also, he began a relationship with the daughter of Karawa, a young woman named Tarinyi. During this time, King's health slowly improved, but he was still incredibly frail, both physically and mentally. His only hope was to live with the natives and with luck, someday, someone would come looking for him. And that is where we will leave John King for the time being. Now our story moves to Melbourne, where the world was in a tizzy regarding the fate of Robert Burke and the Victorian Exploring Expedition. As we discussed last time, the Exploration Committee of the Royal Society of Victoria had, in June of 1861, engaged explorer Alfred Howitt, an experienced bushman, to travel to Menendee to try and figure out just what was going on with their expedition. Well, only three days out of Melbourne, Howitt would run into William Bra. Soon, the world would know that four members of the expedition were dead and Robert Burke was missing. At this point, the Exploration Committee would hire Howitt for a full-scale rescue mission. William Bra would volunteer to accompany Howitt, an offer that was accepted. In July, Howitt would depart and head to Swan Hill. There, he would gather his men and provisions and move quickly and efficiently toward Menendee. Along the way to the frontier outpost, Howitt was stunned to find the supplies Burke had abandoned. Yes, there was a lot of excess, but there were also critical items, including medicine, food, weapons, fishing gear, lime juice, and tons of other stuff, and I mean that literally. The lime juice was, in particular, a huge mistake to have abandoned. If Bra had had it, he might have stayed at Cooper's Creek longer. If Wright had had it, he might have gotten to Cooper's Creek with the relief column. Either way, Burke and Wills may have survived. This puts a spotlight on the haphazard and ill-informed actions of Burke, whose impulsive decisions would have tragic long-term consequences. So, Howard and his men departed from Menendee for Cooper's Creek on August 15, 1861. In the ranks of his expedition were Aboriginal guides, a doctor, and an experienced surveyor. It was a lean and efficient crew. One interesting piece of equipment that Howard brought with him was a camera. It was big and clunky, but Howard imagined that it would be a valuable tool in documenting his upcoming journey. There were only 48 plates available, meaning they could only take that many photos. 
the relief expedition would reach Cooper's Creek in just 25 days on September 8th. Having William Brough with them as a guide had been a great help. Howard and his men would get to the depot by the Kulaba trees five days later. The first thing they noticed was the message on the dig tree. It was unchanged from when Brough had carved it there months before. Again, no one thought to dig and uncover the camel trunk. Howitt would immediately begin a systematic search of the area, and his men would find some camel tracks, which Brock could not explain. This, and other signs, led Howitt to believe that some members of the Gulf expedition had indeed returned to Cooper's. But if so, where were they? Howitt began to suspect that Burke and his men had come back, but had been killed by the aboriginal people. But then, a few days later, on September 15th, Edwin Welch, the expedition surveyor, encountered some local aboriginal people. Among them, Welch reported seeing a scarecrow-like man, who, as he got closer, dropped to his knees and raised his hands in the air, as if in prayer, or deliverance. It was then that Welch realized that it was a white man. They would have the following exchange. "'Who in the name of wonder are you?' asked Welch. "'I am king, sir,' replied the man. "'King?' repeated Welch. "'Yes, sir, the last man of the exploring expedition.' And with that, John King broke down and wept. The moment was a miracle." he had been delivered. In fact, for the rest of his life, King would celebrate that day, September 15th, as his birthday, as he believed that God had given him a new life. It had been one year and 25 days since John King and the rest of the VEE had marched out of Royal Park in Melbourne. So much had happened to the man, and it was a miracle that he had survived. King's health would improve immediately upon getting some quality food. However, it was clear that he was mentally broken. Whenever he tried to tell his story to Howitt, he fell into tears. Also, there was one other difficult moment that occurred at this time, and that was involving William Brah. It was here, upon hearing King's story, that Brah came to understand that he had departed the supply depot a few hours too early, just missing Burke and Wills. Brah was crushed to realize this. On September 18th, with King well enough to travel, the relief expedition headed for the grave of William Wills. Howitt would find that the body had been dug up by animals, and most of Will's skull was missing, likely carried off by dingoes. A proper grave would be dug, and a Bible reading by Howitt would be conducted, despite the fact that Will's was not religious. A few days later, the expedition would go to the location of Burke's body, where they found it mostly intact under a Kulaba tree. Brow would personally dig a grave for Burke, who would then be wrapped in a Union Jack and buried. A short memorial would follow, with Howitt again reading from the Bible. On September 24th, Howitt and his men would prepare to depart the area. The local Aboriginal people lined up outside the camp, where they were given rewards for the compassion they had shown towards King. The men received tomahawks, knives, and ropes, while the women were given sugar. The children got ribbons. Pocket handkerchiefs of the Union Jack, plus extra clothing, were also distributed. Karawa, the woman who had been critical to King's survival, was given 25 pounds of either sugar or flour. I have read both. She and her family would weep at the departure of King. This included Turinyi, the young woman who would become King's partner. The two would separate, never to see one another again. On the return journey, the expedition would pass through the supply depot, where the camel chest was, finally, dug up. All the journals and notes would then be packed up for the trek south. The two-month journey back to Melbourne was difficult, but John King would improve, at least physically, as they went. He was, however, prone to fits of hysteria and had difficulty speaking about his journey across Australia. William Brough would ride ahead of Howitt to alert the world as to the expedition's findings, and on November 2, 1861, he would reach Bendigo. There, he would telegraph the Exploration Committee about the fate of the VEE. 
Robert Burke and William Wills were dead. The continent had been crossed. There was only one survivor. All the expedition's journals and notes had been saved. And with that, the news would quickly spread throughout Australia and the world. Almost immediately, there were tributes to the bravery, skill, and accomplishments of Burke and Wills. One newspaper said this, quote, The name of Robert O'Hara Burke is henceforth of the people of Victoria. The glory of his deed and the sorrow of his death will each render that name memorable in the annals of our country. And may well Victoria be proud of this, her first hero. End quote. I mentioned that the respect and admiration was not just for Burke. Word quickly spread of how important William Wills had been to the expedition, many pointing out, rightfully so, that without Wills, the expedition would never have been able to navigate to the north coast and back. Thus, the Victorian Exploring Expedition's name was officially changed to the Burke and Wills Expedition. It was a nice nod to Wills, who had been essential to the expedition, but we should always remember that this endeavor was about Robert Burke. So, in the wake of John King's miraculous rescue, there were, at least initially, two main storylines. The first was King himself. He was, after all, the one man who had survived. Everyone wanted to know his story. The second story is what I will call blame. Let's remember, seven men were dead, and the monetary cost of the expedition had skyrocketed. Everyone wanted to know why and whose fault it was. With those two things in mind, let us start with John King. The young Irishman, as we noted, was a physical and mental wreck, and in the aftermath of the expedition, he was not given any respite, despite suffering what today we would call severe post-traumatic stress. King, even before he was thrust into the limelight, did not like attention. He was reserved and deferential. The last thing that he wanted was people paying attention to him. But now, that was impossible. John King was, arguably, the most famous man in Australia. He was a hero. Yes, he was a commoner and an Irishman, but he had been a soldier in the British Army, and he was the first man to cross Australia and return. Everyone, even the highbrows, embraced him. Thousands of people would turn out to welcome King when he reached Melbourne. There were parades for him, speeches and ovations. He had to be escorted through crowds or slip out the backs of hotels or else be mobbed. He would even be offered a thousand pounds to star in a play about the expedition. He had offers from newspapers and publishers. Everyone wanted a piece of the guy. But John King just wanted to be left alone. He felt unworthy of the adulation and guilty that he had survived, but not his comrades. All the attention must have been hell for him, and he would turn down all of the offers. I'm going to leave King for now. He will pop up periodically throughout the rest of our episode, and we'll do a quick look at the rest of his life when we do a review of the key people who were part of this story. And that leads us to our next storyline, The Blame Game. Robert Burke and William Wills were dead, along with five others. The papers didn't dare take Burke to task, at least not yet. He and Wills were heroes, but people wanted a villain in this story. How had so many decent men lost their lives? This would lead to a lot of accusations and speculation in the boardrooms and pubs and shops and newspapers. Now, let us start to answer this by saying who could not be blamed, and that was Burke and Wills. In these early days, they were infallible in the eyes of most people. To suggest their fates were the result of their own poor decisions was something no one dared utter. If decent gentlemen like Burke and Wills had died, it must have been the fault of others. Well, if it was not the fault of Burke and Wills, then who? Well, the Aboriginal people would be an easy target. Why hadn't they fed Burke and Wills? Why had they attacked the relief expedition? Of course, this was all pretty ridiculous, and when word got out that the Aboriginal people had indeed saved King, well, they made for a pretty lame villain. 
Next, there was the Exploration Committee of the Royal Society of Victoria. Some viewed them as amateurs and halfwits playing at exploration and colony building. People wondered if they had provided Burke with proper support and done everything in their power to save him and his men. This kind of thing worked, to a degree, but let's remember these were powerful men in Victoria. Attacking them was a dangerous game. And let's face it, being angry at a committee isn't quite as satisfying as being angry at a specific person. The public and newspapers wanted names and faces to hurl their insults and accusations. And that leads us to the various members of the VEE. There were some minor bad guys, George Landells, for instance, but he was long gone from the scene. Thus, that left William Bra and William Wright to face the wrath of the public. At best, they were seen as incompetent, at worst, murderers. So, in the face of such a fierce public outcry, on November 12th, the governor of Victoria, Sir Henry Barclay, announced a full inquiry into the expedition. The inquiry began ten days later, and what followed was nothing short of a circus. I'm not going to go through all the proceedings, but in general it was the government protecting themselves and the Royal Society, and foisting most of the blame on a few hapless individuals, but not Robert Burke. There would be lots and lots of testimony from virtually everyone involved in the expedition, some of it quite dramatic and heartbreaking, and other parts of the testimony were maddening and rage-inducing. The inquiry softballed many of their questions to the Exploration Committee, who downplayed their own questionable decisions and inactions. They said things like they had never gotten Wright's first letter, and the funding problems Burke had dealt with had been a minor issue, that sort of stuff. John McAdam, the committee's secretary, took the brunt of the questions. He stressed that Robert Burke had been given a lot of leeway, and any questionable decisions made by Burke were not necessarily their fault. In the end, no one pressed the committee hard, and they came out of things a little bruised, but hardly a villain. William Brough would be questioned at length, 279 questions, to be specific, and it was obvious that he was being made a scapegoat. He had abandoned his post, they said, and if he was so sure Burke wasn't coming back, why had he even left supplies? And why had he returned to the depot a couple of weeks later? Those were hard questions for Brough, because many felt that the man should never have left the depot in the first place. They argued Brough and his comrades should have died themselves before pulling up stakes. Bra, of course, defended his actions. He argued that he had to consider the lives of him and his men, as well as Burke and the Gulf Party. And Bra even admitted this haunted him. He said, quote, If I had known what I know now, I would rather have perished than had left Cooper's Creek. End quote. In the end, nothing William Bra said was going to satisfy the public or press. Bra had left, and Burke and Wills had died. It was that simple. But what William Brough faced was just a fraction of what people had ready for William Wright. Wright was, to be honest, an easy target. He made no apologies for his actions. When asked why he had taken so long to set out for Cooper's Creek, he said that he didn't have his commission, and he didn't have the horses and camels needed for the journey. It was as simple as that. But Wright was hammered for this very thing. He was depicted as any combination of callous and stupid and malicious and greedy and a coward. It was brutal and vicious. It didn't help that Wright requested a hundred pounds to come testify, to compensate him for the work that he would lose by coming to Melbourne. It was, many argued, proof of his greediness. By the way, to everyone's fury, the money was paid. The inquiry would pile on Wright so badly, he would ultimately refuse to answer any further questions and was dismissed. This, again, just made everyone feel that Wright was guilty or hiding something. Now, I would argue that Wright deserved some of this anger and scorn, maybe even a lot of it, but in the end, he was simply too easy of a target for everybody. 
He had made some bad decisions, but he was also an uneducated and unsophisticated Bushman who had no friends or supporters, and it made him easy pickings for the inquiry, the newspapers, the general public, and even other members of the VEE, who criticized his behavior and actions. John King would take the stand on December 5th. In his testimony, he was completely loyal to Burke and Wills and the Exploration Committee. He spoke of the disappointment he and his comrades felt toward the depot crew for leaving, and he vilified Wright for taking so long to depart Menendee and never getting to Cooper's Creek. And of the thrashing of Charlie Gray, King downplayed it as he sought to protect his former commander's reputation. In the end, when King spoke of Burke and Wills and their deaths, he broke down and sobbed on the stand. The inquiry would conclude on December 30, 1861. In the end, the independent inquiry was not that independent. It was conducted to keep the majority of the blame off the shoulders of the Royal Society and the government of Victoria. To do that, they threw others under the hoods of the camel, since there were no buses at the time. Anyhow, the committee would reconvene in February 1862 and present a report that was, to be honest, not as badly skewed as it could have been, but it was fairly predictable. Here were their key findings. 1. It had been a major error on the part of Burke to select William Wright to lead the relief column. 2. Burke should never have divided the expedition at Menendee. 3. Regarding William Bra, they were somewhat critical of him leaving the depot when he did, but acknowledged that he should not have been placed in that situation in the first place. He was a wagon driver, and the responsibilities that had been given him were above his pay grade. His actions were understandable, if regrettable. 4. The Exploration Committee was negligent for not acting more forcefully after receiving Burke's Torowoto Swamp Dispatch. They should have communicated immediately with William Wright and done everything in their power to get him moving. And 5. Well, we can just call this point William Wright. If there was a villain, he was it in the eyes of the inquiry. The review was scathing. Amongst the things that were said were, quote, fatal inactivity, end quote, and of his lack of action it was, quote, reprehensible in the highest degree. End quote. In the end, it was basically said he was responsible for the deaths of everyone except for Charlie Gray. The report had, as you noticed, put some of the blame on the Exploration Committee and even Burke, but it was minor in nature. William Wright, an uneducated, nearly illiterate Bushman, was the convenient scapegoat. And I want to reiterate that Wright was very deserving of criticism, lots of it, but not the share delivered by the inquiry. Now, with the inquiry stuff complete, I do want to wrap up the events of our story. This includes the funeral of Burke and Wills, and then the aftermath of the expedition, where we will talk about all the men who went out looking for Burke and Wills. Let us start with all the relief expeditions that had been launched to find and rescue Robert Burke and his men. The first relief expedition we have already discussed, and that is the enterprise led by Alfred Howitt in July of 1861. How it found King, brought him home, and discovered and buried the bodies of Burke and Wills. The second was really a combination effort. It consisted of the ship Victoria, sailing to the Gulf of Carpentaria by the orders of the governor of the colony of Victoria. The ship would stop in Brisbane and pick up the Queensland Relief Expedition, eight men led by William Landborough. The combined groups would then proceed to the Gulf of Carpentaria. There, the Queensland Expedition would debark and go looking for signs of Burke, and would ultimately march south across the continent, arriving in Melbourne in October of 1862. The third group was called the Victorian Relief Expedition and led by Frederick Walker. It was launched from Rockhampton on the eastern coast of Queensland in September of 1861. They marched to the Gulf of Carpentaria and even found signs of Burke and followed its trail for a time. 
The expedition would get into a fight with some Aboriginal people in December and kill 12 of them. Walker and his men would then go on to explore extensively in the Gulf region and open up much of the area for settlers and speculators. The fourth group was the South Australian Burke Relief Expedition. It was led by John McKinley and consisted of five other men, 24 horses, and four camels. William Hodgkinson, who had been a member of the VEE, was part of the group. Departing on August 16, 1861, McKinley would go to the eastern side of Lake Eyre and then up to Cooper's Creek. The South Australian group would make one significant and controversial discovery. When, on October 21st, the local Aboriginal people would lead McKinley to a grave about 65 miles northwest of the VEE supply depot on Cooper's Creek. Here, McKinley would dig up the body of a European man wearing a flannel shirt. The head had been severed from the body, and there were cuts above the left eye, described as saber cuts. Also, there was a second grave discovered, but no corpse was in it. McKinley, who we should note had not received word about the deaths of Burke and Wills, assumed that the body was one of the members of the VEE. But which one? Well, when people got this report from McKinley, coupled with the news about the deaths of Burke and Wills, and King's rescue, the assumption was that this was, perhaps, the body of Charlie Gray. The controversy I mentioned surrounded the cuts above the eye. If we remember back in our story, Charlie Gray had been caught stealing food by his comrades. Wills had written that Burke had thrashed Gray. But John King denied it was anything serious, saying it was more like several slaps to the head. Upon hearing the news, people began to speculate that Burke had beaten Gray so badly it had killed him. Now, I want to argue that this was unlikely, and I say this for a few reasons. One, while Burke was impetuous and at times hot-headed, it was not in his nature to be excessively violent. And two, Gray died more than three weeks after he was discovered stealing food. If Burke, or anyone else in the party, had gotten angry with Gray and attacked him, it would have been when the incident occurred, not 20-plus days later. And three, there was no proof that this was even Gray's body. It could have been some settler or miner who had died and been buried by his comrades. William Hodgkinson, who had known all of the golf party, did not think that the corpse was that of Gray due to the hair color and size of the body. And even if it was Gray's body, the saber cuts that were described could have been the result of something else, perhaps an existing injury, who knows. Another theory is that the body was dug up by the Aboriginal people, and the markings part of a ritual. They then reburied the body in a different grave, one not so shallow. In the end, we really don't know the answer. The body described by McKinley was reburied and was never found again, despite attempts to recover it. No matter, the story would cast a shadow over Burke's reputation. McKinley would then go to Cooper's Creek and head north, marching across Australia, from south to north, to the mouth of the Albert River. He would then go east into Queensland, where he and his men would then take a ship back to Adelaide. The final expedition I'll mention was not a relief endeavor. It was, again, led by Alfred Howitt, and its purpose was to explore the area around Cooper's Creek and bring back the bodies of Robert Burke and William Wills. In December of 1861, Howitt would depart for Cooper's Creek. He would then proceed to explore the area and retrieve the bodies of Burke and Wills in April of 1862. The expedition would not start back until later in the year. As a note, Howitt and his men would find the lands around Cooper's Creek teeming with life. One location, which they called Fish Pond, yielded over 70 pounds of fish in a few hours. And along the creek, the men would find pumpkins, melons, and radishes. This had all been overlooked by William Braugh and his men the previous year, which was a tragedy. It reinforced the notion that the original expedition led by Burke lacked experienced bushmen. William Braugh and his men struggled for food while at the depot, yet a little experience in the outback would have led them to a trove of fresh fish, fruit, and vegetables. 
after months of exploring the areas around Cooper's Creek, Howitt would return to Melbourne by marching southwest to Mount Hopeless, just as Burke had tried to do the previous year. Howitt would accomplish the journey in just 14 days. From Mount Hopeless, Howitt would then head south to Adelaide, which he would reach on December 8th. There, thousands lined the streets to honor Burke and Wills. And then, on December 20th, 1862, with flags flying half-mast, the bodies of Burke and Wills would be brought back to Melbourne by ship. The remains of the now-famous explorers were a big deal at the time, and what followed was part memorial and part spectacle. I won't go through it all, but it was something never seen in Australia to that point. There would be 15 days of public viewing, with more than 100,000 people coming to get a look at the coffins of Australia's heroes. This included pretty much anyone of consequence in the colony of Victoria. Amongst those paying their respects was Julia Matthews, the actress Robert Burke had been obsessed with, as well as John King. The latter would break down upon seeing the bodies of his former companions. Robert Burke and William Wills would be buried on January 21, 1863. It was the colony of Victoria's first state funeral. The funeral car was 15 feet long, 20 feet high, and required six horses. Everyone was there, including many of the former members of the Victorian Exploring Expedition. The funeral is said to have been attended by anywhere from 40 to 100,000 people, depending on which source you read. Burke and Wills would then be buried in Melbourne, side by side. Their tomb would have this inscription on it, quote, In memory of Robert O'Hara Burke and William John Wills, the first to cross the continent of Australia, comrades in a great achievement, companions in death, and associates in renown, end quote. A 34-ton monolith would be placed over their graves in 1864, and then a huge bronze statue of the explorers, 26 feet tall, would be erected a year later. The statue depicts Burke standing up while Wills sits at his feet. Wills's father, Dr. William Wills, did not like the statue, as he felt it should have displayed his son as an equal to Burke. The statue has been moved around several times over the years, and it now sits at the corners of Swanston and Collins Streets, although it is temporarily in storage while construction is being conducted. And with the burial of Robert Burke and William Wills, that basically wraps up the expedition itself. But we still have quite a bit to talk about. I want to start by taking a quick look at many of the personalities from this series. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Let us start this next section of our tale by talking about the rival of Robert Burke, Mr. John McDowell Stewart, who at the same time Burke was being buried was being hailed as a hero in Adelaide. Stewart was the leader of several South Australian expeditions to cross the continent. The endeavor he had launched in January of 1861 had been forced to retreat again. This time it was a lack of food and water that had thwarted him. By the way, on the expedition, Stuart would name a small waterway, Burke's Creek, in honor of, quote, my brother explorer, end quote. He did this without realizing that Burke had died less than a week earlier. 
Stuart would be hailed for his exploits, but he had not crossed the continent. He vowed to try again, despite his failing health. Thus, Stuart would set out again on January 1, 1862. His expedition would make it further than ever, before running into the same tropical zone that had thwarted Burke the previous year. The last 200 miles of Stuart's trek would take him a month, but on June 24, 1862, he and his men would reach the ocean. It was a triumph, but Stuart and his men would barely make it back to Adelaide alive. There he was hailed as Australia's greatest explorer and was given the keys to the city. This would be McDowell Stewart's triumph, as he would never fully recover from the hard life of living in the Australian outback. He would be plagued by failing eyesight and poor health, and eventually sail for England, his reward for a lifetime of service being an annual pension of £162. Crippled, ill-tempered, and an alcoholic, McDowell Stewart would die in 1866 at the age of 50. He had traveled more than 12,000 miles through some of the roughest, driest, and most desolate lands in the world, and never lost a man. After his death, his former companions would get together once a year and drink the finest malt whiskey in their boss's honor. By the way, a route mapped by Stewart would later be used for the first telegraph to cross Australia. The road that sprung up along the telegraph line is called the Stewart Highway. I look forward to doing a series on John McDowell Stewart in the future on this show. He was a fascinating man. Now, let us move on to some of the periphery people in our story. There are quite a few people in the Royal Society of Victoria and the Exploration Committee that led interesting lives, and you can look up those guys, and they were pretty much all men, on the internet if you are interested. But there is one person I do want to discuss, and that is John McAdam, Secretary of the Exploration Committee. McAdam was the man many accused of negligence with regards to the expedition. He had blown off the dispatches sent by Burke and Wright, as well as Becker and Beckler. Well, McAdam would fight publicly and privately with his detractors over his role in the expedition's problems. However, he would die a few years later at the age of 38, the result of complications following an accident when he broke several ribs. His part in the Burke and Wills expedition aside, McAdam is actually most famous for two very different reasons. The first is because McAdam's colleague, Dr. Ferdinand Mueller, also a member of the Royal Society of Victoria, named a nut that he discovered after McAdam. This was the macadamia nut. And the second reason that McAdam is remembered by history is that he umpired the very first game of Australian rules football in 1858. So, there you go. The next person I want to mention is Julia Matthews, the teenage actress that Burke had been enamored with. Well, after Burke's death, Matthews would make some public displays of sorrow before moving on with her life. She would go on to marry her manager in 1864. He would turn out to be a drunkard who abused her and stole her money. They would have three children before Matthews left him in 1870. Matthews would go on to tour Europe and North America in her lifetime, and she would die in St. Louis, Missouri at the age of 34, the result of malaria. Up next is Dick, the Aboriginal guide who had helped the expedition before leaving in January of 1861. Dick would participate in another exploration expedition a couple of years later, and from there he would fade into history. I could find nothing more on the man. Next on our list is Alfred Howitt, the man who had saved King and recovered the bodies of Burke and Wills. Howitt would have a long and distinguished career as an anthropologist, explorer, and naturalist. As an explorer, he would travel upwards of 7,000 miles throughout Australia. Also, he would write several highly regarded books about the Aboriginal people. He would get married in 1863 and go on to have five children. He would die in 1908 at the age of 77. Now I want to move on to some of the members of the Victorian Exploring Expedition, 
outside of Burke and Wills. Let us start with George Landells, the expedition's original camel master and second-in-command. Landells would prove to be a harsh critic of Robert Burke. It would make him, in the eyes of many, a traitor. Landells would eventually leave Australia and go to India, where he would die at the age of 46 in 1871. Next on my list is William Hodgkinson, the journalist who had joined the expedition at Swan Hill. Hodgkinson would lead a colorful life. After leaving the VEE, he participated in the South Australian Relief Expedition and crossed the continent with John McKinley. He would then spend time as a publisher and writer before getting involved in mining and even politics. He later married and had four children. He would die in 1900 at the age of 65. Hodgkinson never chronicled his time in the VEE or with McKinley, which is surprising as he was a writer and a first-rate self-promoter. Another of the VEE members I want to mention was Thomas McDonough, who had barely survived his time at the Cooper's Creek Depot. McDonough would become a gold prospector and then an insurance salesman, but he would struggle with mental health issues as he got older. He would die in 1904 at the Melbourne Benevolent Asylum, which was for the homeless, destitute, and sick. Next, I have a little bit on two of the sepoys who were part of the expedition. Dost Mohammed, who had been with Bra at Cooper's Creek, would be severely injured by a camel in January of 1862 while in Menendee. He would be awarded 200 pounds due to the injury and spend the rest of his life in Menendee, working at a bakery. The other sepoy I want to mention is Belloc, who had spent much of his time with the relief expedition. Well, he would go on to appear in a play as himself and later be part of another expedition, working with the same camels that had been part of the VEE. He would then spend the rest of his life living in the remote areas of Queensland. And next we have William Wright, everyone's favorite villain. There's really not a lot about Wright to discuss. He faded into obscurity after his testimony at the inquiry on the expedition, going back to his life as a farmer and ranch hand along the Darling River. I could not find out any other details about the man, not even when he died. Ludwig Becker, another of the officers of the expedition, is the next man I want to mention. And yes, he died during the expedition, but I wanted to acknowledge that the man was beloved in Melbourne and in the scientific community. People mourned his passing, and he was seen as a good man who had sacrificed his life for science. Also, he has a simple legacy from the Victorian exploring expedition, his drawings. Becker was a talented artist, and his drawings and sketches he produced during his time with the VEE are wonderful. Even as he lay dying, Becker continued to draw. Luckily, his sketches have survived, and they remain in the State Library of Victoria. I have put a link to them on our website, explorerspodcast.com. By the way, there is a plaque in modern-day Queensland marking the graves of Becker, as well as William Purcell and Charles Stone. And that brings us to Herman Beckler, the expedition's doctor and botanist. Beckler would return to Germany following his time with the VEE. He settled in Bavaria and practiced medicine until he died in 1914. He wrote a book about his time with the expedition. However, it was not published until well after his death in 1993. We would be remiss not to mention the scientific work done by Beckler. It was not insignificant. He collected hundreds of new flora specimens, including Nardu. And our next man is William Bra, who we have discussed at length already. Many people blamed Bra for the deaths of Burke and Wills. But in reality, Bra was a convenient scapegoat. No, he was not perfect, but he had been put in a bad spot, and he did the best he could with the hand that he was dealt. I think the inquiry into the expedition's failures recognized that. Over the years, as people reassessed the VEE and acknowledged the problems that Burke contributed to the situation, well, they softened in their attitudes toward Bra. 
It doesn't diminish the fact that Bra felt horribly about what happened. He was open and honest about the decision he made and accepted his part in what occurred. And let's not forget, he had displayed his concern time and time again. It was him who insisted on going back to the supply depot, and he later volunteered to return to Cooper's Creek with Howitt. No one else did that. After the expedition, Bra would live and work in a variety of places, including Queensland, New Zealand, and Fiji. He would ultimately return to Victoria and serve as a bailiff. He would get married in 1874 and become the longest-lived member of the VEE. He died in 1912 in Melbourne. And that leaves us with Mr. John King, the sole surviving member of the VEE's golf expedition. To be honest, John King was a tragic figure. On one hand, he was a hero. He had been the first man in history to cross Australia and return. That's an extraordinary achievement, and King deserves to be acknowledged for what he had done. However, the epic trek had left King a man broken in mind and body. He would never fully recover, on either count. He had never wanted attention or accolades, and more than anything, he just wanted to be left in peace. After the expedition, King would be labeled as, quote, disabled for life, shattered in body, and weakened in mind by his great sufferings, end quote. He would be granted a pension of 180 pounds per year for his service. King would go on to spend several years trying to regain his health, but in 1869, things took a turn for the worse. He would get married in 1872, but die the following year at the age of 34 from tuberculosis. Now, one fascinating note about King. As we noted earlier, after the death of Burke, King was taken in by an aboriginal woman named Karawa and would have a relationship with her daughter, Turinyi. Well, a few years after all of that, a man visiting the aboriginal people around Cooper's Creek saw a young girl, five to six years old, who was part aboriginal and part white. She was called Yellow Alice and Miss King. This was John King's child with Turinyi. For decades, the Yanjuwanda told stories of the white stranger who had lived with them for a short time, and there are aboriginal people who, to this day, claim ancestry to John King. And that wraps up the lives of the men of the VEE. Let us now finish our story by talking a bit about Robert Burke, William Wills, and the legacy of the Victorian Exploring Expedition. For this, I have some points I want to make and random things related to the series that I just want to talk about, so I'll just throw them out there in no particular order. Here we go. First item, photography. I mentioned earlier that Alfred Howitt brought a camera with him when he went to Cooper's Creek and saved John King. From that, there were 48 light-sensitive plates, and they were carefully packed up and shipped to the Royal Society of Victoria. Well, the plates arrived at the Society, and a clerk, upon receiving the plates, decided it would be really cool to see the pictures right then and there. He opened the boxes, and boom, light flooded in, overexposing and destroying every photo that had been taken. I won't say it was a tragedy, I mean no one died, but it was a loss. There would have been photos of John King, Howitt and his men, the native people, and the remains of Burke and Wills. It's a shame it was all lost. P.S. The clerk lost his job for that move. Second thing, camels. While the VEE did not introduce camels to Australia, they were the first to bring them there in large numbers and thus introduce the great beast to the Australian continent. It turns out that camels really like Australia. They are well-suited for the environment, and they thrived. They would become important to exploration expeditions and travelers for decades. In fact, camels have done so well since their introduction, it is estimated that there are 2 to 3 million, yes, I said million, feral camels in the country, making them a nuisance rather than a curiosity. Third thing, the Aboriginal people. We have discussed the Native Australians at length in this series. Their interactions with the VEE were a mixed bag, 
mostly because of the inability of both sides to communicate with one another. However, the Aboriginal people proved to be critical to the survival of John King, and if Burke had been more open-minded, they might have saved him and Wills as well. Who knows? All that aside, the story of Burke and Wills affected the Native peoples in that it was a harbinger of what was to come. Behind Burke were other explorers, and then there would be ranchers and farmers and miners. It was all part of a rapidly changing world for the Aboriginal people, one that would, like that of the American Indian tribes in North America, prove to be heartbreaking and all too often deadly. Next thing I want to mention is actually a person, and that is Dr. William Wills, the father of the expedition's second-in-command. Dr. Wills was understandably upset by the death of his son. He was furious at how things had transpired and blamed William Wright and William Bra for his son's death. He would even write a book purporting to say what had really happened. In addition to Bra and Wright, he didn't spare the Exploration Committee or others within the VEE. It was honestly more sad than anything. Dr. Wills wanted someone to answer for his son's death. Instead, blame was shifted around and avoided, and no one accepted responsibility. It infuriated the man. And that leads us to another, much more difficult question. Had the expedition been successful? Had it been worth it? When you start putting human lives into the equation, it almost makes it impossible to make any of this feel worth it. And it's not just about the seven dead men, or the aboriginal people killed by the follow-up expedition, or about men like John King, broken in so many ways. It is about families, like Dr. Wills, losing a beloved son. It's children losing parents, sisters losing brothers. That is incalculable. Now, the human cost aside, here's a breakdown of the monetary costs of the expedition. The VEE had had a budget of £9,000, but once the bodies of Burke and Wills had been laid to rest, the cost had risen to a staggering £58,000. So, what did the Royal Society of Victoria get for all of that? Had it been worth it? Let's remember back to the earliest episodes of the series and recall a couple of the big reasons the colony of Victoria pushed for the expedition. First, there was the telegraph. Everyone wanted to lay the groundwork for landing the overland telegraph route across the continent. And second, there was territorial expansion. Victoria was hemmed in. They envisioned pushing inland and expanding the colony's borders to the north. Well, neither of those things would be happening. The route blazed by Burke and Wills wasn't suitable for the telegraph line, which would ultimately go from the north coast to Adelaide in South Australia. Thank you, John McDowell Stewart, for that. And regarding territorial expansion, well, anything Burke had accomplished was quickly superseded by the work done by those that followed the VEE. Specifically, I'm talking about all the expeditions that went out looking for Burke after he disappeared. These guys would pull the veil off of thousands upon thousands of miles of previously unmapped lands. Victoria would try to annex the territory to the north, they even called it Burke's land, but reality was against them. Others would take advantage of the opening provided by the VEE. Thus, it was men and women from Queensland, now with really good maps and directions to all the best lands, who came from the east, and from the south came colonists and prospectors and speculators from South Australia. Victoria was still hemmed in, even tighter than before. Thus, any dreams of the telegraph route or territorial gains would never materialize. You can admire and respect Burke and Wills for their bravery and determination and sacrifice, but their expedition's biggest contribution to exploring Australia was that it spurred everyone else to go exploring as well. So I want to finish up by talking about Burke and Wills and the expedition itself, sort of give you the highlights and lowlights of the whole thing. Plus, there will be a few more random observations. 
let us start with some words about William Wills. Wills was essential to the Victorian exploring expedition. As we have said, he complemented Burke well. Wills' ability as a scientist, particularly as a surveyor, were crucial. In fact, Alfred Howard would say this of Wills, quote, It was Wills who really took Burke across the continent and brought him back to Cooper's Creek. Without Wills, Burke would have been absolutely helpless, end quote. Again, this is a testament to Wills' ability as a scientist. Wills' biggest fault seems to have been his overly deferential relationship with Burke. To a degree, he enabled some of the worst excesses of his commander, but that is pretty minor in the grand scheme of things. In the real world, he was a hard-working, loyal, and dedicated young man. The work he did allowed the Gulf Party to actually go across the continent and return to Cooper's Creek. There is no way that happens without Wills. Sadly, Burke's Mount Hopeless Gambit failed, and Wills would pay with his life. In the end, William Wills is viewed kindly by history. Over the years, his role has been properly understood and his contributions recognized. In the end, he was an earnest and able young man who died a hero. And that gets us to Robert O'Hara Burke. Burke had said that he would cross the Australian continent or die in the attempt. Well, he had done both. And in the process, he and William Wills became legends to the people of Australia. The populace at the time embraced them for their heroic effort, and the Burke and Wills expedition became part of an emerging national identity. So Burke and Wills were heroes at the time, perhaps the first heroes in the history of colonial Australia. However, as I assume you have been listening to the series, you know that time has altered some of those perceptions. It was not long after the expedition concluded that people began to read the diaries of Wills and other members of the VEE. And while in the immediate aftermath of the expedition, it was verboten to criticize Burke, time changed that. People did dig in and see that Burke had made mistakes, lots of them, and even Wills had his faults. But we need to stress the Victorian exploring expedition was Robert Burke's expedition, even if Wills' name is now on the title. The endeavor became a reflection of Burke, his attitudes, his goals, and his beliefs. This is not to denigrate the contributions of William Wills. He was absolutely essential to the VEE. But it was Burke who was the CEO of the expedition. He made the big decisions, and his men, like Wills, executed on his calls. And while I have heaped plenty of criticism on Burke, I want to stress the failures of the VEE were not his alone, not by a long shot. If you want to point fingers, you can start with the Exploration Committee. We have gone through their issues at length in earlier episodes, so we won't dwell on them now. But the reality was the expedition had been put together with too many goals, too many chefs, and unrealistic expectations. The committee would choose poorly when they picked Burke, and they would choose poorly when they hired others for the expedition. They relied almost strictly on social status and personal friendships instead of knowledge and experience. This led to a badly staffed and outfitted expedition. There was way too much stuff and Robert Burke was not the man to manage the chaos that ensued, both before the expedition departed and after it began. In the end, there was mismanagement on so many levels. Now, that said, if we focus on the biggest problem of the VEE, it was Robert Burke. He was a brave and charismatic and inspiring man, but he was not the right guy for the job. It's as simple as that. Albert Howitt would note at length the limitations of Burke and the rest of the party. He said that Burke, quote, did not possess the kind of knowledge which is absolutely necessary to enable the bravest and most determined man to be the successful leader of such an expedition, end quote. Sadly, no one had experience in the outback, and no one had experience managing such an enterprise like the VEE. It was a huge mistake to entrust it to Burke, and a huge mistake to not give him good people to help manage it. 
Not that Burke would have listened to anyone. His personality prevented him from trusting others who might have done so. It was all part of the tragedy of the expedition. In the end, Robert Burke showed himself to be a maddening leader. He was charismatic and enthusiastic and brave. No one can deny that, and it served the expedition well. But he was also impulsive and short-sighted and unable to adapt to the challenges set before him. So if you had to ask, what were the biggest mistakes Burke made? I would offer these three items. One, he didn't hire anyone with Bush experience. And anyone who did have experience, he didn't trust and ultimately got rid of. Two, his inability to give clear orders was deadly. He should have been very specific in his orders to write and bra, even writing them down. He should have said to write, go back to Menendee, send a writer to Melbourne and get more money, get horses, get to Cooper's Creek ASAP. Instead, his instructions were mushy and open to interpretation. This doomed William Wright, whose inability to guess Burke's intentions allowed him to do whatever he wanted. Thus, he waited and waited and waited. I want to note that even without Burke's orders, William Wright, more than any single person, deserves criticism. He should have gotten an urgent message sent to Melbourne the moment he got back to Men and Dee, and not delivered by steamship, but by direct messenger. He waited nearly two months before doing such a thing, and it was a deadly decision. This was Wright's great error. Now, the third item that I question was Burke's decision to go to Mount Hopeless instead of Menendee. Burke saw 150 miles on the map instead of 400, but it was into unknown lands and without proper navigational equipment and no maps. His men advised him against such a move, but Burke ignored that advice. As so many people have done, Burke underestimated the Australian outback, and he paid with his life. Over the years, the view of Robert Burke has changed to pretty much how I have portrayed him. He was a brave and charismatic man, but one ill-suited to lead an exploring expedition. A lot of men died because of that. And if you wonder, would anyone else have done better? Well, you can just look at Burke's contemporaries for an answer to that question. John McDowell Stewart, who conducted half a dozen expeditions into the Australian outback in his career, never lost a single man. And all of those expeditions sent to find Burke, Howitt and McKinley and the others, well, they covered thousands and thousands of miles, and none of them lost a single man. None of them. So with that, I think that's enough about Burke and Wills. I want to wrap up by talking about how the two men and the VEE are remembered to this day. First, I want to note that there are monuments and statues all over the place honoring our explorers. These men were national heroes at the time, and their deaths were a collective loss for Australia. We mentioned the grave and statue of Burke and Wills in Melbourne. Well, there are other memorials in Castlemaine and Beechwood, both locations where Burke lived and worked for a time, as well as other cities. Also, there is a monument in Totnes, England, which is the birthplace of William Wills. There are plaques and memorials at many of the camps the VEE stayed at on their trek across the continent, including Camp 119, the northernmost camp established by Burke and Wills. Some still even have the blaze marks left by the expedition. The most famous of all of these is the Dig Tree, which, as we noted in a previous episode, still exists today, and you can visit it. I have read that the tree is between 200 and 350 years old. And don't forget, if you get to Men and D, you can go to the Thomas Paine Hotel and have a drink, just like the men of the VEE did more than 150 years ago. And one other thing, there is a river in Australia named after each explorer. Now, in popular culture, especially in Australia, there have been many stories and movies and songs about the expedition. There was a film made in 1985 called Burke and Wills, which I have not seen, but it doesn't get very good reviews. The movie actually shows Burke and Wills reaching the ocean, which never happened. 
Also a fan of the show sent us a link to the song Men in D, which is about the expedition. That was pretty cool. No one's ever done that before. I put a link to it on our site, explorespodcast.com, which, by the way, you can find links to all of this stuff. As for resources, there is an online Burke and Wills digital archive. It is amazing. It has a ton of original source material, all of it free. Again, I put a link to it on the website. As for books, I recommend two in particular, Sarah Murgatroyd's The Dig Tree from 2002 and Burke and Wills, The Triumph and Tragedy of Australia's Most Famous Explorers by Peter Fitzsimmons from 2017. Alan Moorhead's book, Cooper's Creek, Tragedy and Adventure in the Australian Outback is also good, if a bit dated. I also want to do one final shout out to the Australian Histories podcast. While doing this series, I realized my knowledge of Australia's history is really lacking. So if you want to learn a bit more about the land down under, I recommend their podcast. That's the Australian Histories podcast. Just do a search for them. It's well worth it. So that is it, the Burke and Wills expedition. It was an epic story filled with drama and action and tragedy. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for coming along on this ride. Please take care, and I will see you next time. Thank you for listening. Good day. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.